Section 1 of Scholasticism, a lecture delivered before the University of Oxford by Walter Waddington Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Scholasticism, Part 1 If anyone should desire to measure the force of the revolution in opinion, taste, and feeling which separates us from the last century, he could hardly perhaps do so more simply than by comparing the estimate formed of the Middle Ages by the best writers of a hundred years ago with that which is now current among ourselves. Viewed from our present standing point, the account of the Middle Ages given by an historian like Robertson is not so much inadequate as simply and purely entertaining. We read it almost as we should read the travels of a Chinaman in Europe, for the delightful naivete of its remarks, for the pleasure of observing the effect produced by a new society on the mind of a total stranger, and for the odd contrast between occasional penetration and acuteness and the profound ignorance which the work as a whole reveals. To Robertson, modern history began with Charles V, and Robertson faithfully represents the public opinion of his day. Of the other side of the picture I need scarcely stop to remind you. The prominence of medievalism in art, in literature, in opinion, is among the most patent facts of the day. And this reaction of feeling, which has drawn us of late years so strongly towards the Middle Ages, is but one phase of the transformation which has passed upon Europe as a whole, and of which we often speak, not very accurately, as the working out of the great French Revolution. The truth is, perhaps, rather, that the French Revolution itself is but the most striking expression of a movement which has brought into vogue a new cycle of ideas, and has cast discredit upon principles which from the sixteenth century downwards had been accepted as the basis of society. It cannot therefore be surprising that the generation which arose after the French Revolution should have turned instinctively to the annals of an earlier time. If the maxims of the sixteenth century were to be no longer accepted as a law, if the structure of European society, the framework of European politics which dated from that great epoch, were at last to be questioned, shaken, and in great part destroyed, what enquiry so natural as one which would reveal the state of society before the sixteenth century had inaugurated a new order of things? But it is not only the chronological position of the Middle Ages, as coming immediately before the sixteenth century, which makes them of especial interest to us, an age which has made it its peculiar work to recast for living use every institution on which the rust of the past had gathered, must turn with peculiar interest to the annals of a time when an earlier civilization worked out upon its own soil the problem of a free government, and evolved out of the chaos of early feudalism the great principles of order, of nationality, and of law. From an ecclesiastical point of view, moreover, the Middle Ages have an especial interest for us who have seen the results of the Reformation brought front to front for the first time with a new order of ideas which does not derive from the sixteenth century, and which owes no homage to the reformers. Cast upon such a time, our choice at least is clear. An appeal to the sixteenth century will avail us but little now. We must cast ourselves in a larger and more Catholic spirit on the past, or we must move under new lights into an unseen and shadowy future. And therefore, of the whole past, excepting always the very earliest ages of the Church, the so-called Middle Ages are to the ecclesiastical historian at this hour the most full of interest. For the Church of the Middle Ages, while it was far enough removed from the apostolic type, was yet untouched by the rude hand of revolution. It had grown with a continuous growth, it had learnt to adapt itself, with even a fatal flexibility, to the society in which it had been planted, 
and it has become to us with all its faults perhaps the most marvellous instance which the course of history affords of the power of the church to adapt herself to a state of society the most opposite to that for which she was originally formed but in truth whatever our point of view from whatever side we regard the intellectual life of our day we shall be at no loss to assign reasons why the middle ages should at this hour be attracting a share of attention which they have never yet attracted since they fell themselves spent in power and weighted with corruption before the forces of a younger world what is really surprising is that all that has of late been thought and said and written on the subject of the middle ages should have availed so little to make us really familiar with medieval modes of thought it is still true notwithstanding all that has been done of late years that upon the very ground on which we stand in the very university of which we are members there was acted out a most remarkable chapter in the history of the human mind and that we know next to nothing of it we have learnt indeed to recognize at a glance the grotesque energy the playful waywardness the grim independence of medieval art we have learnt at least some of us the bold outlines of medieval history and some of its chief actors are cherished by us with a veneration as familiar as belongs to any historic names but of the great stream of medieval thought of that which underlies the history and finds a partial expression in the art of the middle ages we are still strangely ignorant we have still no history of medieval literature as a whole and the best history of the scholastic philosophy itself is written with the pert self-assurance of a prize-man of the french academy the history of medieval thought is in short a subject in which many feel an interest on which few can claim to be informed and this circumstance may i hope excuse me for bringing before you in a somewhat more public manner a few remarks which i should naturally have made to the attendants on my private lectures now that i am entering with them on the study of the medieval history of the english church that a vast amount of intellectual activity existed in the twelfth thirteenth and fourteenth centuries no one can question who has cast the most casual glance upon the literary records of the time the mere fact so amply evidenced that thirty thousand students were once congregated within the walls of this very university town and congregated it would seem for the most part not with the hope of a degree and of consequent privilege and advancement but simply in order to acquire the current learning of the day this fact which is but the repetition of one which was common to all the great medieval universities may suffice to show how widely the thirst of learning was diffused in spite of the general rudeness of a society in which it was a rare accomplishment for a lay noble to be able to sign his name nor was this intellectual activity of the kind which seems in our own day most naturally to spring up wherever civilized society establishes itself upon a new soil it was not the impatience to acquire useful knowledge which diffuses a shallow education over the largest possible area it was at least to many men an awakening to intellectual life and a craving for a solution of some of the deepest problems that can be presented to the human mind those vast tomes of the schoolmen which we regard with so distant a respect not only bespeak an amount of literary toil rare in the most cultivated times but give evidence of a precision of thought and of a subtlety of logical analysis which may challenge a comparison with the best works of the best ages of philosophy yet no one can take up even in the most cursory manner a volume of some great schoolman without being aware that if it exhibits intellectual qualities of no common order it seems separated from the rest of literature by some impassable barrier it may be curious it may be acute it may be even wonderful as an effort of the human mind but it is impossible somehow to bring ourselves into harmony with it we seem almost at times to be reading the philosophy of another race of beings 
In speaking thus, I am, of course, describing the sensations produced upon one of us on taking up for the first time a volume, for instance, of that most medieval of all medieval writers, the subtle doctor, Duns Scotus. And partly, no doubt, the impression it produces is simply that which is produced upon anyone who takes up for the first time an entirely new subject. But yet, after all allowance, it is, I think, clear to every one that the writings of the schoolmen are distinguished by marked and peculiar features from every other literature with which we are at all familiar. To the question, in what this peculiarity consists, I shall venture today to attempt a partial answer, and it is one which I believe is best considered by a reference to the circumstances under which medieval letters rose. Haureau, in his History of the Scholastic Philosophy, discusses, not unnaturally, at some length, the question, what is scholastic philosophy? and he comes to the conclusion that no better definition can be given than that scholastic philosophy is the philosophy which was taught in the schools. This reminds one certainly of the kindred definition of a modern poet, that poetry is verse. It sounds, in short, like a definition of the thing by its accidents. And yet, when we come to examine the facts by the light of history, we see that there is really more in it than at first sight appears. Logically, the definition may be poor enough but it points to an historical fact which contains the key to the very peculiarities of the scholastic philosophy which it might be hard to embrace in the limits of a rigorous definition. Scholastic philosophy is, in fact, the philosophy of the scholae, in other words, the philosophy which created the universities of Europe, which was fostered in turn by the universities, and which found in the universities its most enduring stronghold. When the empire of the West was broken up by the establishment of the barbarian kingdoms, Almost the first act of the conquerors, when once fairly established on the soil of their new land, was to adopt the religion, and with it some portion of the civilization of the conquered. But the difficulty of which we have had such large experience in modern times, of engrafting upon the habits of a young and half-barbarous race the manners, the mode of life, the education, the whole civilization, in short, of an ancient and cultivated people, was felt also in the new kingdoms which planted themselves on the fallen empire. It was found then, as it has been found since, that the abrupt introduction of a high culture and a gentle life among a people accustomed but yesterday to the forest and to the sword, enervates the barbarian without civilizing the man, and that nations whose misfortune it has been to be thus prematurely forced, have borne for a while the glitter of their mimic triumphs, and have then sunk forever. It was of course on the first wave of the conquerors that these unhappy influences told in all their force. The Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Burgundians, Romanized in all externals more rapidly than those who followed them. They became Christians also more early, but they became Arians. In both cases, the secular and the religious, the same deep-planted weakness was in fault. They did not assimilate the life they copied. The external form was there, the outward polish of the old Roman world, the polity and the ritual of a church, but the vital energy was deficient they had caught the spirit neither of the Roman nor the Christian life. They perished from the face of Europe, but they had done the work of tempering and adapting the Roman civilization more nearly to the wants of the rude tribes who attempted to make it their inheritance. The Catholic Frank, when he subdued the Burgundian and the Visigoth, became less Roman than either, but what he did adopt from the older world he made more thoroughly his own. Yet even here the depressing influence of the traditions of an older world was felt, the Frank and the Saxon knew no modes of government but those of the forest and the forum. The first had come simply to an end, by the mere force of circumstances, when they exchanged their half-nomad life for the government of an old and settled country. 
on the second therefore on the old roman law and the old imperial traditions they attempted to build their polity it was of course in many essential respects wholly unsuited to their circumstances and hence their repeated failures to establish a lasting government until at last in the ninth and tenth centuries the empire of charlemagne broken into a hundred fragments crystallized itself anew as it were on the pure feudal type and a new society sprang into being no longer encumbered with unwieldy and impracticable traditions but yet deriving from the imperial past just so much as it was able healthily to employ without cramping its energies and fettering its own free movement in recapitulating these facts i have seemed probably to deviate from my proper subject but in fact such an outline of the history of the body politic is necessary to an understanding of the intellectual history of the time the one is almost a precise counterpart of the other in literature as in politics three chief periods are to be plainly distinguished from each other in the first of which a man like sidonius apollinaris is perhaps a fair expression everything is cast in the mould of the lower empire cultivated affected feeble to the last degree in the second which is represented by such men as gregory the great as bede and alcuin and erugina the basis of all learning is still the same the same writers are studied the same authorities as a whole are appealed to but there are traces withal that in times of comparative quiet the influence of the east had told the fathers too had inspired a taste for the study of neoplatonism and it was through this channel that the daring speculations of erugina arose to startle an age which was unable either to emulate or to answer them but speaking more generally there is a freedom of handling unknown to the earlier time the writing is more simple the thought more true and just and men here and there are found like alcuin to declare that the science of sciences is philosophy a sentiment which in the fifth century would have simply been impossible and which seems to be prophetic of the great philosophical movement which was to follow nevertheless the intellectual movement of this second period which culminates in the court of charlemagne itself shared the fate of charlemagne's political fabric in the close of the ninth and the beginning of the tenth century a dense darkness seems to have settled more than once on the mind of western europe and when it is removed we find ourselves in the light of a new day we find that new intellectual impulses are at work which are destined before long to effect a revolution as remarkable as any which the history of the human mind records the controversy of lafranc with berengar on the subject of the blessed eucharist has justly been considered to mark the opening of the new period lafranc marks his own sense of the unusual mode in which berengar had conducted the controversy when he reproaches him with desiring quote, relictis sacris auctoritatibus ad dialecticam confugiam facere but he follows himself in the same steps he no longer attempts like a theologian of the previous period to bear down his adversary with the dead weight of authority but he answers dialectic with dialectic and argues a point of theology upon the basis of pure reason what lanfranc had done reluctantly and as it were by accident his disciple anselm did with the whole soul of a philosopher and from that time the scholastic philosophy took firm root in europe the transformation which thus passed on the intellectual education of the western world is one of which it is scarcely possible to exaggerate the magnitude it was an exchange of education by a dead literature for education by a living philosophy in the mere externals of teaching the revolution was visible to the whole world the old cathedral and monastic schools valuable for their store of manuscripts and capable at the worst of affording a plain instruction in grammar were deserted for the new schools which under the name of universities arose in italy and france and england 
if the study of the day was to be not the ancient authors but a living philosophy the primary need was not an ample store of manuscripts but the last and most celebrated teacher therefore it became necessary that students instead of being scattered among the numerous monastic and cathedral schools should be assembled at a few great centres where the greatest possible number of pupils could have access to the lessons of the few men who had caught the ear of their day and could advance the science which they taught a corresponding necessity pressed upon the teachers themselves anselm himself at beck found it almost impossible to receive the numbers who came to him for instruction in the next generation a teacher of anselm's celebrity would have been driven perforce to the new university of paris where alone at that time accommodation could be found for the growing concourse of students the mere fact that the education of europe thus came to be conducted at a few great centres of learning must in itself have had an incalculable effect in awakening a new intellectual life in giving current to the interchange of ideas and in strengthening that sense of unity of which the church was the highest expression but which had been grievously impaired by the calamities of the two preceding centuries but the change was a far deeper one than is implied in this external alteration among all the various kinds of education which have ever been employed two have as a matter of fact enjoyed a clear preeminence i mean education by language and education by philosophy it was between these two that the struggle lay in that revival of learning which i have coupled with the names of lanfranc and anselm the traditions of the past were on the whole in favor of language the impetus of the new movement had come from philosophy yet the study of the latin language received a new stimulus and the latin perhaps of malmesbury certainly of john of salisbury is superior to anything which can be quoted through the long tract of a thousand years which elapsed between the fall of the western empire and the revival of classical letters but the stimulus was simply indirect derived at second hand from the genuine awakening of philosophical enquiry and when two generations had passed the study of language was found to decline again with a rapidity which seemed to keep pace with the advancing strides of philosophy at last in the thirteenth century in the golden age of scholasticism it was found necessary to decree within this very university that the man who maintained that ego curit was good grammar should be deprived of his master's gown and in fact it is easy to see that if the intellectual movement of that day was only healthy and vigorous no other termination of the struggle was really possible all nations so far as i know who have ever achieved a really great literature have passed at one time or another through a course of philosophical training it was on philosophy that athens was formed it was through philosophy that rome achieved success in the only department of literature where she reigns original and supreme arabia india and even china i presume bear witness to the same great law that without a philosophical training no nation has ever yet attained to a high and lasting eminence in the world of letters and there is a sufficiently obvious reason why the study of philosophy should be better adapted as a general rule than the study of language to an early stage in the intellectual career of a nation language in fact imparts its higher lessons by an indirect teaching and so far as it calls out the higher reasoning powers it does so by appealing to a fine sense of difference to a certain delicacy of analysis which presupposes a rather wide reading and a cultivation of general taste and this may often fail to be found in societies where on the other hand there is great intellectual energy and perhaps an impetuous impatience of small and delicate results philosophy on the contrary goes directly to her point and confronts the intellect very early in its training with the great problems upon which the mind of man has ever bent with the most absorbing gaze 
to the strong irregular impetuosity of the middle ages such a study had charms which were irresistible and it brought with it at the same time a discipline but for which the awakened intellect of europe might to all appearances have dwindled away into the sickly gracefulness of the troubadour thus then the victory fell to the side of philosophy and the victory once gained was no transient or partial triumph through two eventful centuries which witnessed as they passed the formation of nationalities the establishment of representative government the birth of vernacular literature and the grand climacteric of ecclesiastical power the philosophy of the schools held on its way not only commanding with an undisputed sway the intellect of those restless times but elaborating its system extending its influence and drawing into its service some of the highest minds that the christian world has produced for two centuries longer though spent in vital energy it continued to rule on till with the fifteenth century came the resistless onslaught which with the revival of classical letters broke for ever the spell of its dominion End of part one.